0: In your Bibles, will you turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 16, Romans chapter 16 and verse number 21. This morning we come to the end of our journey through Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome and I think today is either message 89 or ninety. But if that seems like a lot to you, I have some commentaries on my shelf where some preachers preached about 300 messages in Romans. So I'm I'm still falling way short of what some others have done. But I hope that it has given us greater understanding into God and his ways and his word. I hope that that greater understanding is not just not just that. Not just understanding, not just knowledge, but knowledge that moves us to live in a certain way for our Lord and for his glory. And today we come to the end of the letter. And as is common, uh, we've seen throughout chapter 16, Paul greeting certain people who are in the church in Rome, greeting Christians there. And last week we saw that that Paul interrupted that flow of greetings just for a moment to communicate something very important about the need to be on guard against false teachers. And now he is returning to those final greetings in verses 21 through 23, and then he has a concluding doxology or a praise to God at the end in verses 25 through 27. And what I'd like to do is just to kind of tie both of those together, those final greetings and the final doxology into that one theme of giving glory and honor to God. And so I'm going to read beginning in verse 21. Paul says, Timothy, my coworker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosapater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cortus, send you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel— The message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, you have been so good and gracious to us. And that abundant, undeserved grace has been clearly explained and taught to us by your servant Paul in this letter to the Christians in Rome. God, after reading this letter, after thinking on it, we can't help but be amazed and blown away by your mercy to sinners such as us. We are completely unworthy, completely undeserving. And yet, Lord, you have shown grace to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we desire to give you glory. Just as Paul, your servant, writes in these closing words, we desire to give you glory and praise and honor through all ages, forever and ever. Amen. In verses 21 through 23, Paul, I believe, Expresses the importance of the family of God. And in keeping with that theme of to God be the glory, I'd like to draw a point out of verses 21 through 23, and that is glory be to God who has made us a part of a worldwide spiritual family. Glory be to God who has made us a part of a worldwide spiritual family. We've seen this throughout chapter 16. And here also in verses 21 through 23, Paul mentions certain Christians who have ministered alongside of him, who now want to send their greetings to the Christians in Rome. Much of chapter 16 is Paul sending his greetings to Christians who are in Rome, and he calls them out by name, people that he has met before, people that he's ministered with before that have moved on to the city of Rome, uh, people that he's heard about by reputation or testimony. He sends greetings to them. But now in verses 21 through 23, there are some people who are with Paul, most likely in the city of Corinth, which most believe is where Paul is writing this letter from, there are some people with him in the city of Corinth who want to send their personal greetings to the Christians in Rome. And one of those is Timothy. And probably of all of these names that are mentioned in chapter 16, he's the one that we know the most about. Timothy was someone that Paul met toward the end of his first missionary journey. Timothy was a believer in the Lord. He was, we learn from Paul's letter to Timothy, Timothy was the son of a Jewish mother, but a Greek or Gentile father. But through his mother's testimony, and as well as through his grandmother's testimony and their belief in the faith, Timothy became a believer in the Lord. He was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And along the way, Paul met him and they developed a relationship of, if you will, spiritual father to spiritual son of mentor to disciple. And Timothy became a trusted and faithful co-worker of the Apostle Paul. He would go with him on on his missionary journeys from that point forward. And so they would go into a new place, and Paul and Timothy would uh, preach the gospel. They would seek to gather converts into churches. And times, uh, Paul would move on, and sometimes he would leave Timothy to continue to establish that work there which is how we get the first and second letters to Timothy, where Paul is writing to Timothy in Ephesus to continue to establish the work that is there. But he was a faithful coworker, a one who stuck with Paul through all of his challenges, all of his difficulties, which he lists elsewhere as stonings and beatings and imprisonment and rejection, persecution, hardship, shipwreck. Timothy was a faithful partner with Paul in all of those things. And so Timothy wants to send his personal love and compassion to the Christians who are in Rome. And so he greets them. And then there are some other names that are mentioned here that we know less about, such as Lucius. Some have tried to identify him with uh, Lucius of Cyrene, who's mentioned in the book of Acts. That, identif- that identification seems unlikely. Um, some have also tried to say that this is Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the the Book of Acts, who was a traveling uh, companion of Paul. Uh, But this is likely not Luke, the writer of Luke or Acts, because typically Paul spells his name differently than what we see here. He typically spells it as Lucas instead of Lucius. And also Paul mentions at the end of this verse, verse 21, that Lucius, Jason, and Sosapater were fellow Jews. And from what we are able to discern from some of other of Paul's writings, Luke was not a Jew. Luke was a Gentile who wrote a fourth of the New Testament. And so this is most likely not Luke, but this is someone else that we really know nothing else about. We know a little bit about Jason from the book of Acts. He was a believer in Thessalonica and Jason endured some persecution along with Paul because of the unbelieving Jews there in Thessalonica. And it seems that Jason has come with Paul, maybe moved on, and now he is in the city of Corinth with Paul. We also know a little bit about Sosapater, but but not much. He's, he's mentioned by the name uh, Sopater in the book of Acts. And then uh, Paul mentions them as fellow Jews. And then in verse 22, he mentions his secretary, if you will, his amanuensis, who has been copying down the letter that Paul is dictating to him his name is tertius and this is the only time we see him mentioned anywhere in scripture and then we find a a man by the name of gaius who is a person of hospitality and most likely what is happening with gaius is is he is someone who is probably someone of means he has a large home and he has shown hospitality to paul by allowing him to stay in his home And one understanding of verse 23 is that he held a church in his home, and that's one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding it is that Gaius opened up his home to Christians moving through, traveling, and any Christian who came along, he would take them in and show them hospitality. But either way, he was someone who was greatly used by God in the support of the work, in the support of the church. And this is probably not the Gaius that we read about in uh, John's letters, in 3rd John. This is probably someone else. Gaius was actually a fairly common name in the Roman world at this time. And so we can't certainly identify him with anyone else who's mentioned in Scripture. Erastus is interesting because he is given a city official title. He's called uh, the director of public works. Another way of understanding that is that he was the city treasurer or involved in the city finances in some way. And uh, we don't know much about him. There is one possibility of who this might be that we have found through archaeology in an inscription in the city of Corinth. Uh, a man by the name of Erastus, who is given a, a title of, uh, of a public official. It's not the same word that Paul uses here. It is a different position in the city. And so the identification is not certain, but it could be that Erastus held different positions over different times in the city. And it could be the same person that we have an inscription about through archaeology, but we don't know for certain. But he's a believer in the Lord, and he is someone who is in a position of influence and authority within the city of Corinth. And then we have Cordes, which I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, probably comes from the idea that he was a slave and he was number four as a slave. And so even in this one verse, we can see someone who is an official, someone who possibly was a slave. And they're both on equal footing at the foot of the cross, aren't they? And so we find in this list, Jews and Gentiles people who were wealthy, people who were poor, those who were free, those who were slaves, and they're all one family, aren't they? They're one family. And they're people who are, who are sending greetings to Christians that they've never even met. They're in the city of Corinth, and they're sending personal greetings of love and of goodwill, of grace to Christians in Rome that they've not met. And that describes the great spiritual family of God that we have in Christ. That through all the ages, God is gathering a people to himself, isn't he? He's gathering a people to himself, brothers and sisters in the Lord. We can call God our father because of the grace that he has shown us. And he is gathering together a family that will be a family that will last for all of eternity a family that is gathered together by grace in whom we share the greatest bond, the greatest unity that any human can experience. It is a bond that is greater than blood. It is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a bond, a spiritual bond that lasts through all of eternity. To God be the glory for that, that he is gathering that family together. Verse 25, we see Paul expressed by means of a doxology. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message that I proclaim about Jesus Christ. And what I want to draw from that, verse 25, is glory be to God who will complete the work that he has started in us. Glory be to God who will complete the work that he has started in us. Paul, in verse 25, mentions the gospel. He says, this is the gospel. This is the message about Jesus Christ. Now, he calls it his gospel, in verse 25. He says, in accordance with my gospel, but I don't want us to draw from that, that somehow this is Paul's own unique message that is somehow different from that of Peter's, or different from James, or different from John, or different from that of Jesus. He calls it his gospel, but it is the same gospel that Paul preached or that Peter preached, that John preached, that James preached. It is the gospel. He says it is the message about Jesus Christ. It is the good news with Jesus Christ at the center of the content of that good news. And what is that content? What is that good news? It is that God, in his mercy, has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to bring to us a righteousness that we could not have on our own. That's what he says back in chapter 1, isn't it? Now there is a righteousness revealed from God from faith to faith, or from faith from first to last a righteousness from God. Why do we need a righteousness from God? Because our righteousness will never do. Any attempts at our own righteousness is nothing better than the sewing together of fig leaves of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It just won't work. God came to Adam and Eve in the garden, saw their fig leaves that they tried to cover their shame with, and God said, no, no, that's not going to work. He killed an animal, he substituted an animal in their place, and he clothed them with the animal skins that came from those slaughtered animals. God said, in order for your sins to be covered, blood has to be shed. That theme runs through the entire Bible until we come to the giving of God's Son, Jesus Christ, to the death of the cross, and God's Son sheds His blood in our place that we might be covered with His righteousness not our own righteousness because our righteousness is imperfect it is flawed no matter how hard we try it will never reach the standard of the glory of god romans 3:23 so we need a righteousness from god and that righteousness comes through the life through the death through the resurrection of jesus christ his son and that is the message that paul has been proclaiming it is the message that these roman christians believed It is the message that drew them into the family of God. It is the message that is the the foundation of their eternal life. And Paul says here, now to the God who is able to establish you, to strengthen you, to found you, if you will, on that gospel meaning that the gospel is not only what brings us into the family of God, the gospel is what keeps us in the family of God. And it is that gospel that will hold us by the power of God till all of eternity. As Paul exclaimed in Romans chapter 8, that there is nothing in height or depth Nothing in the future or the past, no angels, no principalities or anything to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We read in Philippians 1, 6, where Paul says that God is able to complete, able to perfect that which he has started in you. God is able to finish what he started and he does it through the proclamation of the gospel. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1.5, we are kept by the power of God through faith. Through faith in the gospel. God is the one who founds us, strengthens us, establishes us, finishes what he started, and he does it through the gospel of his son. Glory be to God. Paul goes on to say that This gospel that he proclaims is in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. In other words, there has been a message. There has been a a message that has been somewhat concealed, somewhat hidden, but now has been brought to light. Now has been made manifest. And so glory be to God, who has brought to fulfillment his long-planned, long-promised salvation in Christ Jesus. Glory be to God, who has brought to fulfillment his long-planned and long-promised salvation through Jesus Christ. What he says in verse 25 and 26 is that, what the gospel that he is proclaiming is in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past what is what is the revelation what is the mystery that he's talking about it is the the dawn of the age if you will of Jesus Christ it is the fact that that through the old testament through Moses and the psalms and the prophets that there was this thread of teaching this thread of prophecy that there was a redeemer coming that there was a savior an anointed one a holy one of god a rescuer of god's people who was coming but it was always it was through the old testament it was always hard to put your finger on the it was a little bit concealed it was a little bit hidden But now, with the coming of Jesus Christ, all of that that the prophets predicted, all that that Moses and the Psalms talked about, it has now come to fruition, hasn't it? Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of everything that was in the Old Testament prophets. And he says, now this This is revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. What are the prophetic writings? The Old Testament of the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. And this is exactly what Paul said in chapter 1. When he said in verse number 2, Romans 1 verse 2, this is the gospel that he promised beforehand Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now at the end of his letter, Paul is saying that this has now been revealed and made known through the prophetic writings. So let me ask you a question. How can something be both Hidden and revealed in the same scriptures. That's in essence what he's saying here in verses 25 and 26. How can something, how can something be, both, be both hidden, mysterious, if you will, concealed, but also revealed and testified to in the same scriptures? I think it's in this way, that, that in the Old Testament there was a testimony there about what God was going to do in Jesus Christ. It was there all along. It was there beginning in Genesis 3.15, that there would be someone who would come and crush the head of the serpent. It was there in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, when God chose Abraham and said, Through you and through your seed, I will bless all of the nations of the earth. So it's been there all along through the Old Testament. That that thread, that, that message of a coming one, it, it's as if the light got brighter and brighter and clearer and clearer as you move forward through the prophetic scriptures. So you get toward the end of the Old Testament and you have passages like Isaiah fifty three that say that, that there is a servant of God, a chosen one of God coming, who will bear the sins of his people. And, and by his wounds, by his stripes, his people will be healed. And so that light of, of testimony gets brighter and brighter as you move through the Scriptures. But the full revelation of it, the full dawning of it, if you will, comes when Jesus Christ comes on the scene. And Jesus is then able to open up those same scriptures of the Psalms, of Moses, of Isaiah, and say, this is now being fulfilled in your presence. Like he does in Luke chapter 4 when he picks up a scroll of Isaiah, and he reads from Isaiah 61 where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the captives, healing, recovery of sight to the blind, And Jesus rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and says, today this is being fulfilled in your hearing. Or at the end of Luke chapter 24, where Jesus gathers his disciples together after the resurrection, and he explains to them from the law and the Psalms and the prophets everything about himself. And he says, here's what this was saying all along. So it was there, it was revealed but it was still somewhat concealed. It was still somewhat mysterious. But now, with the coming of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel through Paul and Peter and James and John, that now it is being boldly and openly with full light revealed to the world. And Paul is basically saying here, glory be to God for that. Glory be to God for... The fulfillment for for this promise that has come through the scriptures that is now fulfilled and is now being fully made manifest through the proclamation of the gospel. Glory be to God. Fourthly, glory be to God who is calling people from every language, tribe, and nation to Himself through the gospel. Paul says in verse twenty six that these writings, the prophetic writings, the gospel that is being revealed has a purpose. And that purpose is this, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. That this gospel is going out to the world. And this gospel is good news, not just to the Jews. This gospel is good news to the Gentiles. And this was God's plan. He says, by the command of the eternal God. In other words, this was God's intention. This was his purpose that through the gospel, the good news would go to the world and the Gentiles would come into the faith. And here's a part of it that I think is somewhat was still somewhat mysterious in the Old Testament, but now is being revealed. And that is that Jews and Gentiles are on equal ground, equal footing. At the cross. And they're all one now, body of Christ. In the Old Testament, we have testimony to the Gentiles coming to Jerusalem, of the light going out to the nations. But in the Old Testament, it always seemed to be portrayed as finding God through Jerusalem. But now through the gospel, this mystery, the the, the curtain has been pulled back, if you will. And it is seen to be that Jews and Gentiles, regardless of where you're from, of tribe, of nation, of language, you're all one in Christ. You are all a part of the equal people of God by grace through Jesus Christ. Reminds me, this doxology reminds me of the doxology of Paul at the end of chapter 11. When he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out who is known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Why that doxology? Because Paul had just revealed how Jew and Gentile were being made one in the gospel. And how God, in this incredibly wise plan, was using the hardening, the stubbornness of the Jews in responding to faith in Christ to send the gospel out to the world. And then through that gospel, going out to the world, God would cause a a sort of envy or jealousy, if you will, to arise within the hearts of the Jewish people. That they too, their hearts would be softened and they would respond to Jesus Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. And at the end of all that, he sees that cycle of how God is saving all the world, Jews and Gentiles, and he just can't help but say, Glory be to God for that. And now at the end of chapter 16, at the end of the letter, he's doing the same thing. Glory be to God because this gospel is going out by the decree of God to the Gentiles. And he's drawing them in to the faith. And notice it is an obedience that comes from faith. In other words, A faith that believes in Christ is a faith that obeys. Obedience is not how we're saved, but obedience flows from the faith that saves. Faith that saves, a God-given, a grace-given faith is a faith that will result in Christian growth and obedience. And the Gentiles are a part of that. We're all now one family of God. Gentiles can be called the children of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he concludes in verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ, amen. Glory be to God forever and ever because of what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. And our our response to what Paul says in this passage is not so much a response of action but a response of faith and worship. Sometimes when we hear a biblical message we think, okay, how can I take this and how can I apply this in actual things that I do? Right? So, so how can I receive this message? How can I interpret and then and then apply it in very practical ways, hands-on ways in my life? And there's certainly much many many scriptures that that we can apply in that way. But I think the one main application from this passage is simply what Paul wants us to do is give glory to God. And that in itself is a response of application to the message, isn't it? Sometimes the the proper response that we have to a message of the scriptures is not what our hands do, but it's what our heart does. And Paul desires for our hearts to be moved. For our hearts to well up with inside of us to praise and honor to our God because of all that he's done. And so, may we say along with Paul, to God be the glory. Amen. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, our God, we thank you that you are the God of glory, the God of might, the God of majesty. We thank you for your wisdom. Paul says here, the only wise God. You are in fact, Lord, the God of wisdom, the God of truth. You are the God who weaves all of history together for the accomplishment of your saving purposes. You're the God who is unifying people from every tribe and language and tongue from every background and you're bringing them together into one family of God. You're the God who has saved us, who has called us and you're the God who will keep us and hold us through all of eternity. We want to give you glory, God. We want to give you praise. So Lord, may all honor and glory and might and majesty be ascribed to you, who is worthy at all times for all eternity of the worship of all of your people and of all of your creation. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.